Good morning, everyone. Welcome to El Paso Bible Church. If you are watching online, welcome also. I have a bulletin in front of me, and in it, we have ongoing events, guys, from children's ministries to all the way to adult ministries. We have something for the whole family. Um, I want to mention a couple of meetings that are going on this week. On Saturday, we have, uh, or the women have, a ministry meeting at 10 in the morning. I get that right? Okay, that, that is not in your bulletin. So if you uh, want to make a note, whether it be a mental note or an actual note of that, women's ministry this coming Saturday at 10 in the morning. Uh, we also have a, our yearly <clears throat> congregational meeting this coming Sunday following the worship service. Now, everyone is welcome to attend and encouraged to attend, in fact, uh, but only members can vote. So if you want to know a little bit more of what's going on on the backside, right, of the curtains, uh, all the technical things, all the plannings that we have going on this year, uh, I encourage you to come to that meeting. Uh, there is a sign-up sheet in the lobby, and uh, Denise and someone else, I don't know who's helping her, Tina, would like to get a head count because we provide sandwiches for you guys if you stay. So if you are planning on staying to that congregational meeting, go ahead and put your name and your, uh, the number in your party down. Uh, just a few more things I want to mention. Um, if... We've been talking about this new building for the longest time, uh, but it, it's, it, it's getting there. It's like that close. Can you see that? That, that close to being completed. Uh, in fact, this uh, past week, uh, two good portions of cement were put in, big slabs, seven, seven inches or something like that. Uh, so if you want to uh, know what that looks like, you could actually, when you leave church this morning, uh, you could... Take the other exit, the other entrance slash exit, and you could get an idea of what the landscaping is looking like. So that is our final stage and probably some minor things here and there. Um, but uh, that, that is that we are making good progress on that. So that's something to be thankful for. Uh, before I read, I, I also want to mention the church app. We have a church application. Whether you are an Android user or iPhone user, you go to your store and you type El Paso Bible Church and you look for a little logo there and you can install the church app. After you do that, you have to join the community uh, to get access to the different groups that we have. Uh, one of the groups that I really appreciate, uh, although, well, I really appreciate the prayer group. Um, I get a lot of notifications like when someone asks for a prayer request and then all of a sudden... Ten people praying, 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 praying. Well, we know you're praying. But I actually appreciate that because uh, we have a network, right, of, of brothers and sisters in Christ that, uh, that, that share our grief with us. And, and, uh, or our praise reports, whatever it may be. So go ahead and install the church app. And uh, you'll have access, once you join the community, you'll have access to the different groups on there. Um, everyone will have access to the prayer group. So that's always good to, to have in a time of need. I am reading the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, verse 28 through 30. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Shall we pray? <clears throat> Father, we are thankful this morning 
for the opportunity to come together as, as your body, the church, and worship you. And we quickly want to take some time and, and pray for those people uh, within our church family that are in, in need of you, physical need, they need healing. We think of them and we pray for them that you would intervene. We ask that you bless our time together as we worship you, that you would encourage us and exhort us by the teaching of your word. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Do you now stand with us, church, for a time of worship? part always feels weird. I have to come and put these on while well, you guys are just there watching. Yeah, we're not going to make this a meet and greet time, so sorry <laughs> for you extroverts.
now we are walking in freedom. Nothing as strong as our Jesus. Our God is alive. Our God is alive. So let praise rise high in this place for our King. Stands over the grave. Let praise rise high in this place. For our King stands over the grave. So let praise rise high in this place. For our King stands over the grave. Oh, Jesus, 
how great thou art how great thou art then sings my soul my savior god to thee how great thou art how great thou Oh, my 
sing with me how great is our God and all will see how great how great is our God how great is our God sing with me how great is our God and all will see how great how great is our God maybe see it Well, good morning. Glad to see you all this morning. Children, you guys can go on to Children's Church if that's what you're doing today. Uh, remember, parents, we, uh, we provide Children's Church, but it's not a mandatory experience, right? If you want to keep your kids with you, that's fine, uh, and encourage you to do what's best in your discernment. So, just like to clarify that. Uh, I should probably reintroduce myself because there's more of my face. Uh, I'm Josh Meyer. I'm the pastor. I've been the pastor here uh, for a while. Um, just the past couple of years, I forgot to shave. So uh, anyway, I've also forgotten how to tie my shoes, which is why I tell my kids I wear boots every day. Um, so that happens to the best of us occasionally. I can get by with boots for the rest of my life. So I guess I'll just have to continue my education in other ways. Uh, anyway, uh, welcome uh, to our worship service today. Uh, we are going to continue in 1 John. We're in the final chapter here. Uh, but before we do that, guys, uh, it's been a, a couple of difficult weeks at minimum uh, health-wise within our body. And so I want to make sure that we continue to pray together for those things and that we do not forget to persist and bringing those things before the Lord together. So I would, if you join me, that'd be great. Uh, Father, we thank you for this day. We do thank you for your word and the promises that it gives to us. We thank you most of all for the gift that you have graciously given to those who have trusted in your Son for eternal life, that life itself that we possess simply by grace through faith, a free gift to those who believe in your Son for it. Father, we do thank you for the provision that you've given to us. Uh, about how to walk in this life wisely, how to, to suffer righteously. Um, you've, your son told us in his ministry on this earth that anyone who desires to live a godly life is going to suffer. But Father, you've not left us without instruction or provision for it. We thank you for that. We thank you for what it makes of us. We thank you for being able, that we're able to take each step in our life knowing that you have good in store for your children. For those who love you, Father. And Father, right now we do ask for healing. Uh, we, we have adopted it recently, the phrasing that a prognosis is not a prophecy. Father, we ask for healing for those who are suffering physically in our body, uh, unashamedly and unapologetically, asking for you to exercise your sovereign will and your power in healing. Uh, Father, we do ask at the same time for courage uh, for those who are suffering, in order to, to do so faithfully and trusting in your goodness throughout the process. 
We do that this morning together because your word says to. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. As I mentioned, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 5 today. Um, and there's lots of good stuff in 1 John chapter 5 that we're, it's ahead of us. So I want you to be encouraged by that, excited by that. I have, uh, I have taught 1 John before. I've taught other topical things that are relative to 1 John. But this is the first time that I've done it kind of this way in our worship service and all the years that I have been teaching. And I'm excited by it. Um, I have learned things as I've gone through an important book, right? Without 1 John, um, we might not quite understand how it is that we are supposed to walk in this life in fellowship, right? I mean, that's a key theme here, and it is a unique theme, really, although I would say that the New Testament emphasizes that. It is very particular, very focused in the book of 1 John. Uh, and so we, we start from the very beginning that John is writing so that we can have fellowship one with another, and our fellowship is with God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. There are these four parties that are given uh, so that we can have not only fellowship, but the product of fellowship, which is the fullness of joy in our lives. Uh, one of the things that we find so much lacking in people's lives, it is not surprising that the world lacks joy right? Anybody surprised by that? You need to stop it. If you are, if you're surprised by the world being unjoyful, lacking joy in their lives, you have not understood the benefits that Christ and His Spirit provides in your life as a believer in Jesus Christ. But the travesty is frequently we also find believers that have Christ, that have His Spirit, who spend time in His Word, that also lack joy and live as if they are just ignorant of the benefits that those things provide to them. We've been given right away, and we said that there's no arbitrary, arbitrary chronologies, arbitrary elements of Scripture. Right at the beginning of 1 John, he teaches his readers, he says, guys, this is how to mitigate. You like that term? Mitigate? Remediate? Uh, this morning, apparently, we didn't drip the right faucets. So then we have a a faucet that needs to be mitigated because it's broken. <laughs> it has about seven cracks in it. So the water is currently turned off at our house. That always happens on Sunday morning. It never happens on Monday morning. It never happens on Saturday morning. It always happens on Sunday morning at the same time that we have unexpected litters of animals and or things being born or random other animals. We have no idea what they're in our backyard. That happens on Sunday morning. So we need to emphasize how to have joy in the midst of trials, yes? That's what we're talking about here. We need to, if something is broken, then it needs to be remediated, it needs to be repaired, it needs to be mitigated, right? And so he says, if you've sinned against someone, if you've sinned against God, you need to confess that sin. If you have sinned against another believer, you need to confess that sin in order to experience a life that is not lived under discipline, because God is a good father. He disciplines all of his children. Disciplines all of his children. We've been given that. It is a, a critical thing. We have these four parties, the apostles who are tasked with shepherding the church in its infancy, fellowship with the believers 
by whose ministry, by the apostles' ministry, came to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father, God the Son, together. Now, it's not that the Spirit's work is not important, but he's talking about those elements in our fellowship. And the means by which he has given us to mitigate is dependent on the Spirit, of course, the conviction in in our lives that we have sinned against someone. But more than that, and I'm thankful for this because it says it's possible, right? We talked about this a little bit. I fix things all the time. And I'm not talking about the spiritual realm. Uh, People are like, oh, pastors, fix spiritual problems. I'm talking about broken pipes and sick animals uh, and broken vehicles. I fix a lot of things. Sometimes I get tired of it. I look forward to a time where I can maybe fix things a little bit less. And I like that John tells us that we can get past the mitigation. We can get past the remediation, at least for a time, right? You never become perfect, but you can move beyond fixing, remediating, and mitigating things into building beyond that. You can build love. You can create love. You can experience a fullness of joy that is not simply fixing a pothole in your church's road, right? Actually, I guess it's a sinkhole that's more relevant, right? We've got sinkholes opening up, swallowing up whole cars. Be careful where you walk, gentlemen. It could be you over that sinkhole next time, right? The means which are to build up fellowship is to love one another. Because the, the love that has made us who we are is a great love, an unfathomable love that the Father has bestowed on us that makes us children of God, but it does not make us anonymous children of God. It gives us the right to be called such. You can put that on your business card. That's your ID. The children of God. And that love is designed, as we've talked about in recent weeks, to be completed, to be perfected. It is a particular love that is designed to be finished in our exercise of it. And loving each other. That is its purpose. That is its highest purpose that is achieved in us. I don't think that we often make a big enough deal out of that, and maybe I'm at fault there. That is a tremendous privilege. You know, you can think about the parallels in Scripture, right? Uh, you talk about the nature of King David's ministry. Who was given the privilege of storing up all of the things to build the temple? David. Who was given the privilege of building with all those materials? Solomon, who has the greater privilege? Solomon. He was able to bring that to completion, to finish what his father had prepared for. It's a tremendous thing, the privilege of princes to carry on and bring to completion the purpose of the king. Something that we learn to do more and more. It's a process. It's not something that you wake up one morning generally and know fully how to do. And God constantly brings new people into your life that have different necessities. Someone asked me after a sermon a couple of weeks ago, a visitor, they said, well, what is the highest expression of love to a human being? I said, well, somebody that's dead, tell them how to be alive. That's the highest expression of love. No, 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 I'm talking about like in 1 John. What about believing? I said, that is a very varied answer. 
Uh, she was a little bit critical of me that I didn't say, this is how you love this person. This is how you love that person. One of the things as a pastor that I have realized doing this and teaching God's Word before people for like 20 years or something now, a little longer actually, if I go back to when I was really, really, really bad at it, like in college and stuff, is that there is not a one answer to that, how to love this person or that person or that person. We have to apply discerningly, wisely, the standard that we are going to sacrificially seek the best interest of the person that God has placed in my life. And that is not a one-size-fits-all. Yes? Y'all can understand that, right? There's a reason I don't do that in 37 and a half minutes on Sunday, which is my average sermon length, by the way. My children are unsure as to my average sermon length. About 37 and a half minutes on average. I just want you all to know I know these details. I'm not a detail guy, but I make sure that I can tell my children when I preach longer than average. So that's a broad answer. But we learn better and better, and we can come to make a wise decision more competently as we try to make more and more wise decisions in our lives, thankfully. In order to do that, John tells us it's necessary to discern the spirits, and what he means by that is to discern teachers, to discern people who are proclaiming God's Word rightly from those who are proclaiming God's Word wrongly. And the dividing line, the litmus test that he gave was that those who confess Jesus Christ, who say the things about Christ that Scripture says, that Jesus said about himself, are the, the teachers who are teaching according to the correct spirit, the Spirit of God, and those who by negligence or denial fail to do that are teaching from the Spirit of the Antichrist. People who fail to proclaim scriptural truth and Jesus' own testimony about himself are teaching out of the spirit of the Antichrist, which is already in the world. We know from multiple scriptures. Don't waste your time trying to identify who the Antichrist is in this world. All you have to know is that the spirit of the Antichrist is in the world, and scripture says this is how you can identify him. Yes? Right? Okay. Good enough? All right. I'm not ignorant of those things. But if you come and tell me, do you think so-and-so is the Antichrist, I'm going to tell you to go away. <laughs> That's not my problem. He has not been revealed, certainly, I don't think. So your opinion, and what is it, 550 will get you a cup of coffee? We used to say your opinion in 50 cents will get you a cup of coffee, but that doesn't, 50 cents, do you even have 50 cents in your ashtray anymore? It doesn't even get air at the gas station, I don't think. That he's the Savior of the world, that he's the Messiah, that he's the Son of God among them, right? That he, he is being confessed. Those are important things. And we looked last week that one of the, the great benefits of loving one another this way is that there is no fear in it. That loving the way that Christ wants us to love other people allows us to live courageously in an antagonistic world. 
to live like Christ is. In fact, he said that just as he is in the world, so are we. So are we. We don't have to fear the consequences of our actions in the present. You don't have to fear the action, fear consequences of your actions in the present, son. But put that in your pocket. You don't have to fear the consequences of your action in the present or the future if you are loving the way that Christ has determined that we should love, according to his example. You do not have to fear those things. The courageous, by this definition, love more and better than the cowards. Cowardice is unloving. One of the prime examples is the failure of many people who claim the name of Christ, failing to love the culture around us and telling them the truth about many things, about what Jesus Christ has done for them, about who they are in their standing before Jesus Christ, Simple things that God created them male and female. And that you can call a relationship between you, a monkey, and a bicycle a marriage, but it doesn't make it one. You cannot love people unless you tell them the truth, and it is cowardice to fail. But the courageous love the way that Christ did. I don't think the list necessarily in 1 John is, is entirely comprehensive. It talks about what we need to confess about Jesus. We don't have to fear if we love like he does. It's an obligation. John says it multiple times. Your, your translation into English probably softens it a little bit. It says you ought to do that. I've been told what I ought to do my whole life. Years ago, I was told that I ought not to eat so many eggs. Now I'm told I ought not to eat so much cereal or bread. I used to be told not to eat lard. Now I'm told that lard is the superfood, and I ought to eat that instead of that. See how wonky ought is? You know the thing that I've never done, even though I have feared that I might not be able to do it, I have never had a debt that I did not pay because it was my obligation. It is what I owed. And that is the language that John says, that in the family that God has established by grace through faith that has called us all children of God and such we are, this is a debt that we are obligated to pay to each other. brings us here. And there's a bit of a reminder. I ought to, I think I've mentioned this, I'm not sure, but there are different styles of argumentation in Scripture uh, based a lot of times on the culture. Paul, who wrote a lot of the New Testament, so it's important that you understand these. Paul is a very linear mind. Are you a linear mind? No, you don't have the ducks in a row in your mind. Following the meme there floating around. Um, I'm not sure that I even have any ducks. They definitely aren't in a row. Actually, I do have ducks. You know what's really hard? Get those stupid ducks to do anything you want them to do. That's more like my brain. 
I introduce my shop that way to people. I'm like, if you see this, this is a macrocosm of what's going on in my head at any given moment. It's not a compliment, it's not a criticism, it's simply the recognition of how things are. But generally speaking, our mindsets run like Paul's. Cause, effect, maybe effect, cause. cause. I mean, in this linear progression, that's how he argues. But that's not how Eastern logic, by that, in the old days they would say Oriental logic, ancient Near Eastern logic, where they more cyclical. And so in their argumentation, they will draw a conclusion here from this logical arrangement, and then they will remind you and review that and draw another application, and then they will cycle back around and draw another application. And it is still linear in a sense, but there are linear concentric circles. I should probably see if I was, if I had my ducks in a row, I would have a graph up here to show you this. But my mind, again, has no ducks in any row. But you can understand, perhaps, right? So that's what we have in 1 John. John is very Jewish. His gospel is very Jewish. The epistles are very Jewish. And the logic is structured a little bit differently. It is still eminently logical. But we need to understand what he's doing. Verse 1 says this, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father, actually it says, loves the one who begets. Loves the one who begets, loves the one begot of him. Now, I think that's talking about Jesus. What he's saying here is that you believe you are begotten of God, you're a child of God. We know that. That's something we know. He's reviewing that. And whoever loves the Father, the one who begets, loves the one begot of him. Now, you may have some exceptions in your human experience, right? You might have somebody that you love the father, but you can take or leave the kid, or vice versa, right? That might happen, but not with the father and the son, because their wills are identical. Their love is identical. If you have seen me, Jesus Christ said, you have seen the father. We're told in Scripture that the whole ministry of Christ was designed to represent the father's will and the father's love and the father's purpose. If we were to take it synthetically like that. So if you love the Father, you love the Son. Singular. We know that. We've been told that in First John. That's review. By this, we know that we love the children of God. By this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and observe His commandments. Notice there's nothing about the reception of the love. There's nothing about the emotive response to love. There's nothing about nice or not nice. Yes? No? Don't insert that there. That we love God and observe, keep His commandments. We know those things. When we obey the Father, we're obeying the Son. Obedience is the definition of love when it comes to God, the Father, and God, the Son. 
When we do what He says, we love God. When we obey what He commanded us to do, we love God. Love is not primarily an emotion in Scripture. I illustrate this to people in their human relationships. We probably did this in Ephesians when we were talking about how a husband is supposed to love his wife. Because I think, gentlemen, a lot of us are suffering under the misconception that when we love our wives, they smile at us. That's not true. It is not dependent on the response. Now, the opposite might not be true. Whenever your wife grimaces at you, you may also not be loving her. I'm not saying that because your wife may grimace at you. You may grimace at your wife regardless. The emotive response is really not at issue at all because that's not part of the definition, doing what your wife likes or doing what your husband likes necessarily. As you both grow towards the image of Christ, that happens a lot more frequently, I think. You become more like your spouse, I think. Today I was explaining to my wife, vis-a-vis, right, the uh, broken pipe. I said, wife, I think I need to buy something called a freeze miser. Have you seen these things? They have a thermostat in them. You leave your hose on, and when it gets too cold, it lets a little water out. Let's a little water out. It's like dripping your faucets, but technological. And my wife that's been hanging around with me for 27 years, which by almost anybody's definition is way too long, says, that thing's going to break. Yes, ma'am. I could have said that myself. I'm not real technologically oriented when it comes to things like dripping faucets. But understand, the emotive response has nothing to do with the definition of love. It has to do with whether you're doing what God says to do. The other person also has that obligation, understand, to do what God says to do. When we obey them, we are loving them both. You love the Father, you love the one begotten by the Father. And we know that. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. We, we know that. We know that. Remember, the, the information is review and cycle. So now we expect, we've been reviewed certain elements of the argumentation. Now we're going to expect the application, and that's what he gives. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments. In other words, this is the love that is sourced in God when we love each other. We're obeying His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not burdensome. Barus is the word. This is God's love that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. Here's the part we haven't heard before. His commandments are not burdensome. but They're not a crushing weight. Years ago, some folks who were no longer at El Paso Bible Church, and some who were, I think Mr. Lang back here helped us with this process. Jacob helped us. A few other people helped us. We got, somebody gave us a hot tub. Y'all ever moved a hot tub? 
eight-person hot tub? Don't. Do without the hot tub. We moved the hot tub, a bunch of us. You ever seen the people build, moving big rocks in old movies, right? They roll them on big logs and stuff. That's how we moved the things. That we used PVC pipe. We got the thing safely, and that is something, man. I hadn't shed any blood by the time that hot tub got into our backyard. And in the last crucial moment, as we were lowering the hot tub down, it slipped and landed not on my foot. I've had that happen. Went to college my first year with a barely recovered broken foot from dropping a table on it, right above the steel toe. Not on my foot, not on my arm. I wish it, at the time I was like, couldn't that just hit me in the head and it would have been all over. It landed on the middle finger of my left hand only. Like an idiot, I pulled it out. Didn't wait for anybody to get a crowbar under it or anything. I know what barus feels like. I thought that that bone right in the tip of my middle finger was crushed into nothing. It wasn't. But I thought it was. Barus is a weight that destroys, that has the capacity to destroy, that gives at least the sensation of destruction. See, love is sacrificial, but something that is Barus says, I cannot bear that. It will destroy me if I have to bear that kind of weight. We're not talking about going to the gym there, gym rats. That's not the kind of weight we're talking about. I know we got some gym rats here. They're not looking up right now. His commandments are not like that. It is sacrificial, but it is not crushing. You were born for it. Men, you were born for it. At the very least, you were reborn for it. It's not an unreasonable burden. It's not a crushing weight. You were born for it. To bear it. This is where some people cherry-pick their way through Scripture to avoid virtually any mention of the debt, the obligation that we have to each other. They really love the free gift and the identity that we have. We love it. Love it. The greatest gift. And a faithful response to that is to ask what God would want me to do with the life that he has given me. Why was I born? It's a philosophical question that gets asked all over the world every day, millions of times most likely. Why was I born? Why am I here? To fulfill your obligation to love. That's why you're here. Don't go through Scripture just 
hopping from one lily pad of pleasantness to another lily pad of pleasantness, hopping over the tough language. Remember, we've said that. We need to get over the, the, the habit of assuming that all of the harsh language in Scripture applies to unbelievers. All of the corrective language, all the discipline language applies to believers. Virtually none of the discipline language applies to unbelievers any more than you go around Walmart spanking kids that need it. No one's arguing that those kids in Walmart don't need it, but it ain't your job. God doesn't go around spanking kids that aren't His. So if you see a discipline passage, <laughs> that's God talking to His children. There's no disparity between saying that our obligation is to love. Love is an obligation. One that husbands we signed up for. Yes? We signed up for. On that day when you stood before your wife, and some people do this in Vegas or whatever and there's nobody else there, but it doesn't matter where you did it. You signed on that line. It is an obligation. And John has said that to us over and over and over. But sometimes as a pastor when I tell somebody that you have an obligation to love like 1 John tells you to love, like Ephesians, husbands tells you to love your wives, that God wants you to do that in that particular context, I would be lying if I said that people don't look at me with a crestfallen look. I can't. I can't do that. I was young and stupid when I signed that dotted line. Or something. Yeah, you were young and stupid. Anybody not young and stupid? You don't even have to raise your hand. I know it's universal. You were young and stupid. That doesn't matter. God doesn't leave you there. I've told you this before. <laughs> That's just another way of saying that your relationship initiated on trust. All relationships initiate on trust. You don't have knowledge of how the relationship is going to go when you initiate it. You don't know Jesus all that well when you trust in Him for eternal life. That information required for that is very minimal. If the Lord privileges you with the ability to be married to the same person for 50 or 60 or so, how many is that? Somebody recently had like a 75th anniversary. How do you even do that? I don't even know. There is verifiable objective fact that you didn't know crap about that person the day you got married compared to what you know 75 years later. That's just, that's just how life is. So we have to walk in faith Understanding that if God has set this obligation for us to love one another, and not just our wives, not just, but that's, if you can't do that at home, it's going to be real hard to do it at church. We must also believe when the Word of God tells us that it is not a crushing weight to do that. That He has promised provision of the strength and the wisdom and the power and the ability to do that in order for it not to be a crushing weight 
Because as he is in the world, so are we. When I say that, I have a legitimate reason to say it. Because the love is the love that Christ has. Where did the love of Christ take him? To the cross. In obedience to whom? The Father. Obeying his commandments. And it was not a crushing weight for him to bear. Obedience. It was harsh, terrible, worst one of the ways, one of the worst ways that man has ever devised to execute another human being. People get sued today over whether we should use this very, very gentle cocktail of drugs preceded by a huge amount of painkiller as being humane. That was not an argument for most of human civilization and history. But because of the love that he had, it was a bearable weight. He bore it. By definition, he bore it. It was bearable. People get upset at silly things. When I tell them that, like Scripture, like we started out, well, Scripture tells, commands you to confess your sins. I don't want to. I don't care. I just don't care. Scripture says that you need to confess your sins. But that's a crushing burden. I'll have to admit how awful I was to that person. Kind of the point. If you're awful to the person, you ought to confess that. We could go down the whole list, but the the vast majority of the New Testament is essentially God's commands and His correction, commands that are designed to be obeyed. And in obeying them, 1 John tells us that we're loving one another. And it's not going to crush us. We may get a little exercise out of it. Yeah? Get a little exercise out of it, but it's not going to crush us. The truth is that I don't think that most people actually think that it's going to crush them personally. Scripture says it will not, it's not burdensome, it's not bars, it's not going to crush you to destruction. The Bible tells us that it will not. The, the real question I think that comes up in people's minds is what is that going to cost me to do that? Um, it really comes down to emotions a lot of times. I just can't bring myself to do that. It's a bad habit. And it is a habit. It is something of a, of a latent, hopefully it's latent, hopefully you're not a full-blown, fully ripe narcissist. <laughs> but all humans have some latent narcissism, don't they? I'm really not that bad, and that wasn't a sin, that was a mistake that I had against that person. Um, yeah, it was a mistake, that was a sin. It 
So we have to deal with our feelings on the matter, I think. I think that's a good way to say that. Because when you say, no, I won't do that, then you're not bearing the burden and you don't know if it's going to crush you. Right? Like, I used to, my first roommate in college was about this big. He was uh, of an extraction that didn't lend itself to extreme height, but he could lift like crazy. He almost had to strap his legs down to the bench in order not to flip upside down. He would bench press so much. It's pretty impressive. One day we went to the gym together and I was spotting him. I didn't need to be there because he had put a crushing weight on that bar. I have never seen somebody exert the way he exerted. I had seen what he could lift. He could not lift it. But he didn't know until he bore the burden that he couldn't. First time in my life ever in a gym I've ever heard two or three coaches that were watching their players up here go, that's too much weight, boy. But he didn't admit it. He didn't know it till he had borne it. You don't know if you can bear the burden until you bear it, until you push on it. Most people don't get that far. They just tell me, no, that's going to crush me. No, I feel this way about it. I don't care. The Bible says that to obey God's commandments is not a crushing burden. Therefore, I will tell you to bear the burden if you come and ask me, what should I do? And then if the numbers are correct, about half of you will never step back inside the door again. Just, I just know how it goes. That's just the numbers. But we have to deal with our, our feelings, right? Because we, that's what gives us the sensation. But the sensation we know is not actual, right? A, a few years ago, everybody was up in arms. Everybody's always up in arms, Right? If you watch the news, everybody's mad about something. Riot season is coming again, I think. Yes? Probably it's seasonal, cyclical now. Everybody gets warm enough for all the hobos to come out and riot. They come out and riot. I mean, that's about the size of it. But a few years ago, everybody was up in arms because of um, an interrogation technique known colloquially as waterboarding. Now, if you, your opinion on whether it's applicable or useful or not is really not relevant because I'm not talking about whether it was what it was or what it wasn't. The idea is, though, that the person being waterboarded is to feel the sensation of drowning without being drowned because you can't interrogate somebody who drowned. Yes? I mean, whether you feel it's warranted or not, I happen to believe that occasionally there are enough people at risk that it is necessary, things like that. And you can hate me for it. Join the club. Take a number. But what is the issue? It is the sensation of drowning. You're not going to drown. It's the sensation that is terrifying. And the emotions create your sensation. Now, I don't know if there's somebody who has control of their mental faculties enough in that situation in order to not, to master the sensation. I don't know that. I never did it to anybody. It's not part, normal part of the pastoral vocation. We torture people with a few extra minutes of preaching. 
uh, go beyond the 37 and a half minutes. That's a different way that we do it. See, this is the problem. When I tell people, obey what Scripture says in your situation, they do not have control of their emotions. Their emotions say that I'm going to be crushed. I'm being crushed even by listening to your offensive words, Pastor. No, you're not. Stop crying about it. And believe what God says. And do what He says. To love. Master that sensation. Master your emotions. And know that God has not commanded you to engage a crushing burden. A lot of times the issue there is that we have a problem fearing what the consequences of loving like that are. Because remember, it's not just about handing out ice cream cones, and it's not just about telling people they're a good boy and keep doing what they're doing. It's telling people hard things, correcting them, disciplining them, certainly. A lot of people feel that sensation because they fear the world's perception of Christ's love. That's the problem a lot of times. That believers forget how we relate to the world. You must not forget that you don't relate to the world the way the world relates to the world. That's why the one of the commands you're supposed to obey is do not love the world or the things of the world. John has told us that earlier in this book. Do not waste your effort loving things that are passing away Remember that there is no fear in love. You're not to fear the world because you're not supposed to love it. If we can understand in the moment that we are experiencing love from another believer in Jesus Christ that is not necessarily pleasant on the face. If we can keep our understanding of how we relate to the world biblical, then I think that that's going to help us keep our emotions in check. We don't fear the world. We don't love the world. We can overcome that sensation of being crushed by God's commands. For whatever is born of God... Here's a present tense verb, kind of a continuous action, I think, in this case. For whatever is born of God is overcoming the world, you could say. You are in the process of victory. Now, if I were to stand here and I would just ask you that question in a different way. How victorious are you today? Now, I'm going to tell you, when Joel Osteen asked that question, it means something different than what it means when I ask you. Did a Mercedes just show up? Unexpected, unpaid for, unsigned for in your garage? That's a victorious life. What's well, not? Some drunk may have stole it and parked it there. I don't know. That happens, yes? 
People crash into, I mean, people have cars parked in their living room in El Paso on exciting weekends all the time. Oops. John tells us that if you are born of God, you are overcoming the world. Do you need to respond in fear or do you need to advance if you're experiencing victory? If you're winning, do you run? Who runs? The losers. How do you know that's true? But whatever is born of God is overcoming the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world. This is how you know. He says, our faith. We're winning because of who we are in Christ. He has overcome the world. You may look around you and feel like you're not winning because I don't, I don't think America is winning right now. A lot of Christians have taken comfort in, in their identity as Americans who are winning. You better divorce yourself from that idea. That's not what's guaranteeing you're overcoming. It's who you are in Christ. Our participation is simply our identity in Christ because he has overcome the world. Aorist tense, it's already done, it's a given, it's been completed. Now understand, this is not the only way that overcomer is used in scripture. It's like almost every other word you use in your whole life, that it means sometimes different things in different contexts. But in this context, it's very clear that this is a benefit of simply being alive in Christ, being identified with Christ, bearing his righteousness in the world. And because you're winning, there is no obligation you have that should cause you to flee when asked to love people, when asked to, being, when asked to love the children of God, because you have overcome in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this identity that we have in Christ, for the confidence that it grants us. When we love the Father, we love the Son. And we can know when we have loved the children of God, when we love you by keeping your commandments. Father, we thank you for the clarity of that statement, for the reality of it in our lives and the benefits that it gives to us. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us? in you, Jesus. I 